Grass withers, flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning studying the word of God. We are doing our review of 1 Timothy. We have been studying verse by verse through 1 Timothy for quite some time, and we completed that verse by verse study. And now we are in the process of going through and doing a review. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment in order to make sure that we are indeed prepared for the study of the Word of God. This involves confession of sin, if necessary, so that we might be filled with the Spirit, but also humility. We have to take the time to humble ourselves because without humility we are unteachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with another opportunity to gather here at the church. We are indeed listening for the sound of the trumpet, that it might sound and you may send your son to gather his bride together and that we would be taken up with our brothers and sisters as, as the church to meet him in the air and to go to heaven and be to that place that's been prepared for us. Father, we are looking forward to that, but In the meantime, while you delay, because of your loving kindness, while you delay, Father, we are thankful for every opportunity that we can gather like this and have the beautiful fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, have the opportunity to consider the truth of your word and to allow it, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to allow it to nourish our souls. It's the food that we so desperately need. So, Father, help us to take full advantage of this time this morning that we will quiet our minds, listen to what your word has to say, and through the ministry of your word, we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with something a little different, um, and I meant to bring this up earlier and did not do so, so shame on me, Uh, but I will bring it up here now. And we're going to talk about something that I think uh, most of you will find uh, appalling, but it's something we need to be aware of that's out there. Um, uh, I'm going to my, oh, I'm going to my email. Oh, it's making me approve here. See, I should have been paying attention. I should have done this before class. Now I'm making you all go through it. Yeah, so hopefully we'll get some kind of a notification here and be able to do this. Um, if not, I can talk to you about it. Um, see, I'm not getting any kind of a message. Eh. All right, so unfortunately it is not working. Maybe it will here in a minute. Um, but what happened, I got a message from Pastor Bob Bolander. And hopefully I'll get get a message here soon on my phone so I can actually get logged in. Uh, And it had to do with, um, unfortunately, it had to do with the building where the church used to be. Did you guys get the newsletter? You didn't have to get that? that? The building where the the, uh, church, Austin Bible Church, used to be, which was over near uh, Woodrow, Anderson Road, all that over in that area of of Austin, that's where... That's where we were when we went to Austin Bible Church. 
that's where you guys got married. That's uh, where I got married, where Terry and I got married and all of that. Um, we, I helped a lot with the planning for the new building and all of that. And then uh, I was gone. We were already, we'd already established this local church by the time they moved to the new building. Um, but he sent a note about the, the, the people that are there in the, in the building now. And it's an interesting thing that I would not actually refer to uh, as a church. I'm not getting any notifications here on my phone, unfortunately. I should have taken care of that beforehand, like I said. But um, the, uh, he went through it in the newsletter. He talked about uh, the doctrinal statement in the Constitution. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you actually gone through and at least looked partly at the doctrinal statement that we have in our Constitution? I see a number of hands. We also have some other things that are mentioned on the website in terms of some things that we've committed to and whatnot. But we have a doctrinal statement on our, uh, in our Constitution that's very similar to what you will find at other churches like Austin Bible Church and whatnot. And uh, again, I wish I could read, read to you from, the, from the, the actual thing that he sent out, the actual newsletter that he sent out. But basically, the, you know, for example, it talked about what the Word of God is. You know, God breathed and inspired. It's a message that God delivered to us, uh, and, it, and it's a message from Him to us, delivered uh, flawlessly in the original do, in the original documents, and so on and so forth. Are there are there errors in the copies of the copies of the copies? Of course, but uh, that's how that works when you copy something. But in the original manuscripts, it was it's without error, delivered perfectly through the the God breathed and inspired Word that we have through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But then this church talks about what their stance on it is. And they said, well, we like to study the Bible as the musings of men over the course of all sorts of years and how they were seeking after and trying to find God and what they felt like was the, you know, was, was what they could do as far as uh, try to understand God a little bit better and so on and so forth. And basically a truly uh, horrible diminished view of the word of God and what it is. It's just terrible. And then when it came to, to Jesus and the gospel, you know, the, the, our doctrinal statement has a pretty clear gospel message. I think you would agree. If you read our doctrinal statement on no uncertain terms, it talks about the gospel there and, uh, the, and, and the fact that, you know, faith in Christ is, is the only way, right? That's the only way uh, to a restored relationship with God. And then, but then they go on in their statement to talk about how uh, there's all sorts of people in their in their gathering. I don't want to call it a church because that would be blasphemy. I think uh, all sorts of people in their gathering that uh, have all sorts of different views about Jesus. You know, everything from him being both God and man, which some of them do believe, all the way to people who see him as a really wise. Uh, person for his time and some think of him as a prophet and all this kind of thing and they go on talking about Jesus and it's it's horrible and then the next paragraph talks about how um, that their gathering is all sorts of people everything from uh, agnostics to atheists to uh, people who believe are believers and so on and so forth and I'm talking about that this is proudly portrayed about this gathering that they have atheists among them and so on that don't believe in in God whatsoever and they go on and on. And then, and then when they talk about the gospel, they talk about how, you know, our mission is to go out and find ways that we can uh, seek after those who are hurting and do what we can to try to help them 
and give them comfort and bring them this and bring them that. It goes on and on and on. And it's very much a social message, you know, social kind of thing. And then, and then say, well, if, 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 if we, uh, if we can do all that, if we can do all that, then what does it really matter what we think of Jesus? They literally said that. What does it really matter what we think of Jesus? And uh, in, in the newsletter that, that was published, it was you read all this and you're going, wow. I mean, this is so, so far from a lampstand that has been planted by Jesus Christ as the head of the church. There's no way. I mean, this, we're talking about uh, not only is it something that's diminished from what a local church should be. This is a place that's doing the bidding of Satan. Let's be honest here, because they're talking about, you know, they're, they're putting out a message that that is really what Satan's message is to this world. I mean, how many how many times do you hear from unbelievers the idea of, well, you know, Jesus is just this one individual and maybe he said some wise things, but that's all he is. I mean, you hear that from unbelievers all the time, you know, and, and, and one of the things that's one of their favorite things to talk about is, is you know, there's got to be more than one way to heaven because, you know, there's a lot of good people that there's no way they're going to go to to hell just because they haven't believed in Jesus. Well, I mean, the Bible talks about that. And here's the thing I got to say about the whole thing. Like I said, I really wish I could have brought it up and, sh- and, and read it to you, but I gave you the gist of it. Um, is that I'm serious about this. If, if, I, if I share with you or with anyone else all kinds of messages that are... Uh, things that will help you navigate your way through life in some way or manner. And I don't tell you about Jesus Christ. And I don't tell you about being lost and needing to have salvation in order to be reconciled to God. If I don't tell you about where you're going to be for all of eternity, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if I don't give you that information... I'm not doing anything for you. If I give you momentary temporal comfort in this world or I help you in some minor way as you navigate through this world and I don't help you for all of eternity, what have I really done? I've done you more harm than good, haven't I? I've given you a sense of well-being. You see what I'm saying? I've given you a sense of well-being when what we really all need is the Romans road. That's what we all need is a Romans road to help us realize we're sinners. We fall short. We can't get there. The only way the, only way the bridge can be made, the gap can be bridged, the only way that can happen is through faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Now, I know you know this. As I look around the room, I see believers. You all know this. But as born-again believers, if I don't continue to deliver to you the message of Scripture about how the only way you're going to walk in righteousness is through the empowerment of God, and the only way you're going to ever have a real true understanding, what's called epinosis, a true, a true understanding of God and of Jesus Christ is through diligently studying his word under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. If I don't tell you that, I'm doing you a disservice. If I deliver to you fancy stories and I make you feel better about yourself when in fact the word of God is going to make you feel worse about yourself. A lot of times when I read the word of God, it doesn't make me feel better about myself. It's convicting. Makes me feel worse about myself, right? That's exactly what it's supposed to do. It cuts like a sword, two-edged sword. So the reality of it is what's going on in churches like this is not helping people. They think they are. They think they're helping people. They think they're doing this wonderful, this wonderful service. If you come to this church as an unbeliever, I, I, believe me, I am not going to dissuade anyone who's an unbeliever from coming 
to this local church. But I promise you this, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the gospel. I am not going to water it down. I'm not going to make it seem uh, like it's just one way or any of the other things. It's the only way. I'm, I, I promise you that's how it's going to be delivered from this pulpit. As long, and so as long as I'm here, as long as I'm the pastor, that's the way it's going to be. And it really, reading this article, reading this thing that was that was uh, in the newsletter from Austin Bible Church, really just really, as you can tell, it kind of got me riled up because it's really disturbing to see a local, a local organization that calls themselves a church. I will not call them that, but they call themselves a church. That is not a church. That is not a church of God. That is a social gathering is all that is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Second Peter two one. That's exactly right. It is. If, if, yeah. That's the thing that's frightening is they're in the gatherings, right? They're in the gatherings and they rise up from among and they, and they're the ones that can cause more harm. But part of the reason is because people think that they they can be trusted because they come up from among them. But the reality of it is these are these people are just liars and deceivers. Who's the liar and the deceiver? Satan. So when, when you see these kinds of lies and deceit, it can't come from anywhere else. He's the father of lies. Anyway, I, like I say, I really wish I could have read the whole thing, but you've got the gist of it, and it really was disturbing. You compare. We are, we're unabashed about what we put in our doctrinal statement. Unabashed about it. It's the truth of God's word. Yes. I can. Yes, I'll send out an email with a link to that. So you can get that. Yeah, you can get that and you can look at it for yourself. And believe me, it, it's, I'll warn you ahead of time, it's disturbing. Yes. See, think about it. As a strategy, as a strategy, Suzanne makes a great point. As a strategy, if you're Satan and you're trying to figure out how you can undermine what God is doing, man, if you can, if you can soil the churches themselves, that's a, that's a big victory. And I talked about that uh, a little bit last hour, the idea that, you know, in reality, as if you, th- look, you can look at it in terms of churches, but what about individual believers? If I can get you as an individual believer distracted away from the truth, right? If I can get you as an individual believer to start buy into Satan's world, cosmos, lies, if I can get you to do that, now you're not fighting on God's team anymore. Right. You're you're actually somebody who's if Satan can look at that and say, well, I've had I've had a little minor victory here. I've taken this one who was uh, who was absolutely a warrior for God. And now look at him. Now they're doing my bidding. Right. That's what Satan can say. And and, and in the process of that, he has a minor victory. Thanks be to God that we know that Satan is not going to win the war. Right. We know that we already know the end game. We know that Satan loses. But in the meantime, Satan is having these minor victories. Right. And it's individual Christians and it's I I loosely use the term churches because places like this that have these things that are part of their part of uh, their proclamation of who they are. I don't consider that to be a local church. That's not a that is not a a church that's been planted by the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church. Anyway, I, I, I really wanted to share that. I will send out a link to that to that newsletter so you can read it. Yeah, if you think about it, Austin's Austin's kind of, you know, they want to keep it weird, but uh, that's a, that's that's beyond weird, guys. That's beyond weird. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of issues with that in Austin, that's for sure. But it was really, like I said, it really bothered, it really disturbed me because 
because Terry and I had driven by and we saw some, some signs and we were reading those and going, now that's not good. But apparently he derived a bunch of this off of their website or something and saw what they're, you know, what they say about themselves. And it just, man, it just, it shook me up. It really did. All right. Well, I don't know. See, that's the, the scriptures talk about the idea of the wheat and the tares and the separation of that. And we know that will eventually happen. It's in the meantime, the tares exist among the wheat. Right. And but we know he's the one that's going to do it. He's the one that has to do it. And so he's going to do it. And maybe we're seeing the beginnings of that. I don't know. Maybe we are. Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely the tares are becoming more obvious. Right. Well, let's get back to our first Timothy. We're looking at verses 18 through 20. Paul's first charge to Timothy and here's what our translation was. This instruction I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, maintaining your faith and a good conscience, which some have abandoned and suffered complete loss in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. I'm glad I don't have the authority to do that kind of thing, by the way. But, but Paul, as an apostle, did. Let's look at some principles. We've all been entrusted with an incredible treasure in the Word of God. Don't ever, don't ever sell that short. When, you know, a lot of times we can get casual about it. I've been a believer for many years now. And we can get casual about that and not think and treasure, not really in our own thinking, put the, put the emphasis on what a treasure we have, what a gift we've been given by God. Psalm 12, 6, uh, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. It goes on talking about uh, the keeping and the preservation. But this verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Pure. There's, the word of God is something we can trust. It's truth. I keep over and over again. It just it gets further and further uh, stuck in my craw. This whole thing about my truth and your truth. That just makes me crazy. There's truth, people. There's absolute truth, and we have it. We have it from God. And so this whole thing of what you think, if you, may, you, you can believe in something as much as you want. That doesn't make it true, right? But when God delivers his truth to us, that's truth. You know, it's like I give the example of the bridge. When we talk about faith, we talk about the bridge. You can believe with all your heart that that bridge is going to support you as you walk over the canyon. If you walk on it and it drops you into the canyon, how much was your faith worth? That bridge was not strong enough to hold you. You were believing a lie. And so a lot of people in the world today are believing a lie. But we have God's truth delivered to us, and we can trust in that. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, look what it says here. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So we have wonderful treasure given to us right now. Whatever we, whatever we know Whatever we do, whatever we accomplish in this life that's of, of true value is of God and not of ourselves. Amen? Right? If we accomplish anything, if we have anything that's righteous, if there's anything of value whatsoever, it's of God and not of ourselves. We have a wonderful treasure given to us in his word. We also live in a time when we can receive an abundance of Bible teaching in the local church, on the radio, on the TV, on the Internet, etc. For all the wickedness that's in the world, we have more access today to Bible teaching than ever, ever, you know, people all around the world. We, by the way, we have, I have a deal on our website 
that can actually figure out when people come and access the website, they can figure out, you know, what pages they looked at and where they are. We get hits on our website from all over the world, all over the world, including mainland China, by the way. There's people all over the world that are hitting our website, and they are able to access the teaching that's on there. So it's, it's everywhere. You can get all kinds of Bible. Now, buyer beware, though, before I move on. Buyer beware. There's all kinds of teaching on TV, on the radio, on the Internet, etc., that is not sound teaching. So be careful. Be careful. However, we must be diligent to ensure that we're receiving sound biblical teaching. That's what I was just talking about, 1 Timothy 4, 6. In continuing to teach these things to the brethren, you will be a useful servant of Christ Jesus, being constantly trained in the words of the faith and of the sound teaching which you have been faithfully following. Sound teaching. The idea of sound teaching means that there's teaching out there that's not. And there's teaching out there that's not. Be careful. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 4a. If anyone teaches strange doctrines and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching and conformity with godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. And it goes on from there, but that's what I wanted to point out. He's conceited and understands nothing. So this the whole thing. Like I, I talk about it all the time. If somebody is teaching, if you hear teaching... Somebody teaching anything on the radio, on the Internet, wherever it might be, if you hear somebody teaching, what's your standard? What is your, what is your plumb line that you use? It's the Bible. It's your plumb line. If anything they're teaching doesn't match up with what the Scripture says, yellow flag at a minimum, red flag, even in some cases, raise the red flag because there's a problem. So that's your, that's your guideline. And again, people talk about, I talk about it, the Bible talks about the leading of the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, will he ever lead you contrary to Scripture? No, never. So if you feel like you're being led to do something and it's contrary to what the Word of God says, there might be a spirit involved, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Be careful. He will never lead you contrary to Scripture. Therefore, it's critical to find a local church with a pastor who can shepherd you and protect you from the wolves. Acts chapter 20. 19 through 32, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. That's what we're talking about. From your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. But you've got to be careful. There are wolves out there. There are wolves out there. What does it say in 1 Peter 5? It talks about the answer, really, in a way. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Therefore, I, a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and the one, excuse me, and one who shares in the glory that is about to be revealed, exhort the elders among you, care for the flock of God among you, keeping watch over them, not out of a sense of obligation, but by choice, according to the will of God, according to, uh, well, that's, that's repeated there, isn't it? According to the will of God and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as bossing around those assigned to your care, but proving to be examples to the flock. I think I've got a typo there. Um, but the reality of it is, look what this says. This is the answer. There has to be an elder, a shepherd. There has to be somebody caring for the flock, keeping watch over them. 
The reality of it is all of us, uh, all of us can be attacked by the wolves and the wolves can come up from among us. And the shepherd needs to be aware of that too, doesn't he? That the wolves can come up from among us. God provides such gifted men for the building up of believers in a local church. You probably heard this passage a number of times, but it's so powerful. This is a message. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Today we have gifted evangelists and and gifted pastor teachers. And by the way, I've talked about this passage. The construction in the Greek is such that it's a mende construction. It's like a bullet point list in, uh, in like a slideshow or something, a bullet point. And you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then this is just one more, pastors, pastors and teachers. It should be translated pastor teachers with a hyphen. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's where we're all headed, folks. That's where we're all headed. We're no longer supposed to be children. We're supposed to be growing up in the faith. And this is, this is talking about giftedness, but it's talking about gifted individuals, isn't it? It's not talking about uh, the gift of evangelism or the gift of pastor teacher. It's talking about these people, these evangelists and pastor teachers. Now, apostles, we don't have any apostles anymore because that ended at the end of the first century. Uh, we don't have prophets anymore because there's no new, there's no new uh, revelation coming from God at this point in time. It will begin once again in the tribulation, but not today. So we don't have apostles and we don't have prophets. Uh, we have evangelists and pastor teachers today. And what is, what are they, why are they given? Why does God give them to us? Why does he give them to local churches for the equipping of the saints, for the work of of service, uh, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now here's the thing you got to remember. This is what, this is what the The local church is all about equipping the saints for the work of service, building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, right? All of these things which are mentioned here is what these individuals are given for. So the primary function, and I've said said this to you before, the primary function of a local church is what? Equipping the saints. That's the primary function. Now, is there supposed to be an evangelistic component to a local church. Absolutely. We're supposed to be getting the message about Christ out to others. We're supposed to be, each and every one of us, by the way, are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ, sharing the gospel with those we come in in contact with in in our walk. But the reality of it is the number one function of a local church is the building up of the body of Christ, the building up of the saints. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So like I said before, I had someone ask me what my mission statement was, which we don't have a mission statement. We don't function like a corporation here. But what's your mission statement? You know, what do you, and I said, well, exp, you know, tell me what you really mean by that. They said, well, what do you envision the church being like in five years? And I said, what I see is I want to see a body of believers that have grown in their faith. They're stronger in their faith five years from now than they are today. That, you know, and, and, the, and the question came up, well, what about, what about uh, in terms of growth in num- numbers of people? And I said, that's God's to do. He's the one that gathers the flock. If we grow in numbers, that's what he's going to do. If he doesn't do that, that's fine with me. As long as we, as a body of believers, are growing in our faith, becoming stronger in our faith, that's what I want to see. As believers, not just church, all believers, excuse me, not just church leaders or soldiers in the spiritual conflict, I'd like to give you a different message. But this is the message of Scripture. This is the truth. If I, if I gave you any other message, it wouldn't be true. 
Uh, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, it is a spiritual battle that's going on, and all of us are part of it. I wish I could tell you, you're safe, don't worry, Satan's not going to come after you, but I can't tell you that. That would be a lie. You know, the reality of it is all of us are in the, in the battle, even if you don't want to be, you know, uh, even if you don't want to be, you know, all the people back in the, back in the day when I was young, I was a little bit too young to be part of the whole thing with Vietnam war, but there was a big sentiment back in those days, right? The people didn't want to have anything to do with the military because they didn't want to get sent off to Vietnam and so on and so forth. Well, I got news for you in the spiritual warfare that's taking place. You don't get a choice. You are part of it. You're in the battle. You are in the battle. And so you've got to decide if you're going to pick up your armor and the weapons for warfare or if you're, going to, uh, if you're going to try to step to the side. You can't do it, though. You're going to be in the battle. In 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's a description of all of us. We are soldiers of Christ Jesus. And so if you want to be part of the battle, if you, I mean, if you want to be successful in battle, I should say, because you're going to be part of the battle. If you want to be successful in battle, you need to put on the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, right? You need to put on the armor of God. You need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You need to rely upon God's strength because, as I've pointed out many times, uh, Satan in his insanity, I believe he is insane, Satan in his insanity is craftier than you are, craftier than I am. He's crafty. He's a crafty fella, and he's going to come up with ways to try to ensnare you. However, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? So if you have the strength of God protecting you from Satan, you're going to be okay. But the problem is all too often we try to rely upon our own strength. That is a recipe for disaster. Do not rely on your own strength. Rely upon God. Therefore, we must engage in fighting the good fight of the faith. We have no choice. We are going to be fighting the good fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good profession of faith in the presence of many witnesses. See, there's fighting the good fight of faith, and there's a couple of important things about that. We're in the fight, right? So engage. Engage in the fight. But it's a fight of faith. Notice that? The fight of faith. We're fighting a fight of faith. Then the second part we talked about, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. All of us, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive everlasting life. And that's a better translation than eternal because God is the only eternal thing. There's no beginning and no end. For us, it's everlasting. So take hold of the everlasting life to which you were called. You received everlasting life the moment you believed in Jesus Christ. But have you taken hold of it yet? Are you living like someone who has eternal life or or everlasting life? Or are you still living your life as though it's only for a few short years and then it's over? Uh, You're supposed to take hold of it. So it's very important. That's part of the process of how we fight the good fight of faith is by taking hold of our everlasting life and living that way. In order to do this, we must maintain our faith through consistent spiritual nourishment, keeping up with the lessons taught at your local church, daily devotions, daily Bible reading, etc. Here's the whole thing. Think about it for a second. (laughs) If you want to be good at anything, right? If you look at people, all kinds of people who have natural talent at sport, let's say, 
If they want to be the best, if they want to be successful at whatever it is they're trying to do, don't they have to train for it? Don't they have to work? It's, it's a work, they have, have workout programs. They have to uh, improve their skills and so on and so forth. Well, this is, it's no different in, this, in the Christian life. If you, as a born-again believer, if you don't do anything to, I'm going to use that term, sharpen your skills as a soldier of Christ, then you're going, to make, you're, going to, you're going to be in a position where you don't have all the assets uh, available to you. Think about a soldier in the military. You take a soldier who enlists in the military, give him a little bit of training, and then just send him out and have him, no, these guys get an abundance of training. I, I told, my secular job, I get to meet all sorts of individuals that are in our armed forces, and I'm impressed by our young people that are in the armed forces. I really am. The, the younger generations kind of concern me, but the ones that I have met that are in our armed forces are just amazing, amazing young people. And, uh, but they get an abundance of training. I mean an abundance of training. They never get put in the position of going into a situation, whatever it might be, without really thorough training. Well, God's going to give us everything we need for life and godliness, but one of the things that we're supposed to be doing as part of our walk is we're supposed to be continually growing in the faith. Amen? We're supposed to be growing in the faith. That's that spiritual nourishment that we need all the time. It's not, a, it's not once, a, once a week, by the way. It's not Sunday morning at 1030. Uh, the spiritual nourishment that we need is daily. We need daily nourishment. Just like you're not going to, if, if it came to regular food, you're not going to say, well, I just won't eat anything all week and I'll wait till Sunday morning and then I'll go into church and have some, uh, you know, some sausages or whatever else. I'll have some uh, some, some pastries or something. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. You would be starving if you did that. Well, spiritually, it's the same. Spiritually, you're starving. If you only feed yourself once a week, you need food, right? You need food, spiritual food. Uh, we looked at these verses um, last hour, actually, but I'm just going to read the first one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what this is telling you is, by the way, anytime you see churches, plural, it's talking about local churches. It's not talking about the church universal. Whenever you see churches, plural, it's local churches. So the Holy Spirit has a message for the local churches. He has a message. The Holy Spirit has a message for this local church. If you have an ear, by the way, and all of us have ears, it's not really talking about the physical ear on the side of your head. It's talking about you really actually want to listen, right? If you really want to listen, then you, you need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, you, what your local church is learning from the Word. And there's messages. We have messages on Sunday morning, and we have a message on Wednesday night, and that's the message that the Holy Spirit is delivering to this local church. We must also live in a godly manner so that our conscience doesn't become seared. This is something I need. You know, am I going to tell you, am I going to try to tell you that anyone among us uh, walks 100% in righteousness, I'd be lying to you if I told you that. Uh, I don't want you to put me on some sort of pedestal and think that I walk in righteousness all the time. All of us stumble from time to time. All of us do. So, but here's what I want to warn you about. I'm not going to make excuses for sin. I never will. Uh, I will tell you that the, the Bible tells us that we, we stumble from time to time. But what I will say is if you get off course too far, and you, you start veering off to the left or veering off to the right, and you stay in that path for too long, your conscience can become seared. It's what it says here in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. That's not a good thing. God gave us a conscience to help us to recognize when we're not doing the right things. And so if it becomes seared, then that tool that he gave us uh, has been damaged. 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. That means unbelievers in that context. Uh, Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Well, do, do we see futility of people's minds today? Boy, it's unbelievable. That When I read that, when I first read this in Ephesians 4 years and years and years ago, I never dreamed we would see the futility of the mind that we're seeing today. Uh, as Just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind uh, of impurity with greediness. It goes on and says, but you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. And it goes on from there. But the reality of it is that is that's going to affect you. Allowing yourself, look at that callous, that language callous right there. You can literally be desensitized to sin. Now, this is a warning here talking about unbelievers, yes, but believers can do the same. Believers that get off course, if they get too far off course for too long, they can become desensitized to sin. I mean, think about when it talks about callous. My wife always likes to joke about my fingers. I, I've been all my life, even though now I'm, I've been, you know, for years now I've been working as an electrical engineer, soft, writing software, all my life I've been somebody who works with my hands. I always have. I, ever since I was young, I've worked with my hands. So needless to say, my fingers have calluses. And I can reach into the microwave oven and pull a plate out of there that she couldn't even think about touching. But I can do it. I can pick it up and I can carry it over and set it on the stove because I can't feel, I can't feel it, right? My hands have become desensitized because of the calluses that are on there. That's what can happen to our souls, that's what can happen to our souls if we get too far down the wrong path for too long. We can become desensitized to sin. And that's not a good thing, folks. You want, you want your conscience to alert you that you're on the wrong course. You don't want to sear uh, the conscience. If we do not maintain our faith and guard what has been entrusted to us, we'd be in danger of going astray from the faith. You cannot go astray from the faith if you've never been part of the faith. Uh, here we have it, the last two verses of 1 Timothy 6. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty talk and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. It's the world we live in today, for sure. Knowledge, which some have arrogantly professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Again, this, now, now this is talking about believers, isn't it? Believers who've espoused, arrogantly professed this so-called knowledge which is not godly knowledge, it's not truth, and they've gone astray from the faith. Again, you can't go astray if you've never been part of it. By the grace of God, we cannot lose our salvation. Amen? Amen. By the grace of God, we cannot lose our salvation, but we can certainly forego temporal blessings and forfeit eternal rewards if we turn away from the faith. Revelation 3.11 says, uh, I'm coming quickly, hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now think about this for a second, the crown Every time in the New Testament when you hear about crowns, it's talking about eternal rewards. The crown of life is not talking about salvation. The crown of life is a reward. Crowns. This is saying somebody can take your reward. Now, here's how I think this happens. It doesn't say specifically here in this passage, but here's how I think this happens. Ministry opportunities that are given to you that was a crown that you were supposed to have. You were supposed to get that eternal reward, but you did not Take advantage of it. Somebody else 
stepped in and they got the crown and you didn't get it. So somebody else is going to have an eternal reward when you were the one who could have had it. Don't let them take your crown. First Corinthians 3, 9 through 15, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Very important here. What do we have here? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. When fire hits those, what happens? The wood, hay, and straw burns up. That's the Aggie bonfire I always talk about, right? And then we have the gold, silver, precious stones. What happens with them? They become refined, if anything, right? They don't go away. They become refined. This is a very important word here. It says the fire itself will test quality of each man's work. That's dakimazo. A dakimazo test is a test for approval. I talk about this all the time. It's very important to understand. When you stand before the judgment seat, the bema seat, you are there being tested for approval. Now, what does that mean? God, Jesus Christ is going to be there judging, by the way. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be judging us, and he's not trying to shame us with the wood, hay, and straw that burns up. He's trying to show us the gold, silver, precious stones. It is a test for approval. It is, I talk about it. It's the sword maker's test. The, the sword, sword maker works tirelessly for a long period of time to make a sword, but before he delivers it to the one who ordered the sword, he tests it. That's a dakimazo test. He certainly doesn't want the sword to break in two, does he? Because then he's got to start all over again. He wants it to be successful. That's the kind of test that we get at the Bema Seat. God is testing us for approval, for approval. Let me go on. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Well, what's the message there? If everything, I want you to, by the way, if you look at the Greek in this thing, if everything burns up, if you show up at the judgment seat of Christ, first of all, let me tell you right now, if you are at the Bema seat, you are victorious. You have overcome because you have believed in Jesus Christ. If you, if an unbeliever is not going to show up at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, you are a believer. But that passage actually says, if everything burns up, if it's all wood, hay, and straw, if it all burns up, in other words, if all your works in your lifetime were worthless works and they all burned up, you're still saved, yet so as through fire. So in other words, your salvation, it's another way of saying it, your salvation does not depend upon your works in any way. But notice what's being judged is works. Every judgment you read about in, this, in the Scripture, every judgment that takes place is a judgment of our works, not our sins. Why is that? Jesus already died for him on the cross, didn't he? Jesus already paid the punishment. He was judged for our sins on the cross, was he not? Yeah. And so they're not brought up. What's brought up at every judgment, whether it's the Bema seat, whether it's the great white throne, whether it's the sheep and goats judgment, whether it's the wilderness judgment for Israel, all of those, the works are what's evaluated. The works are what's evaluated. It's not your sins. All right. Also, by the grace of God, when we stray from the faith, we are objects of his discipline, which is designed to be corrective. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Well, a lot of sons today, but that's another story, right? For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, discipline trains us, read that, Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the idea. It's corrective. It's, not, it's for our good. It's corrective. And we're supposed to be trained by discipline. Uh, if our spiritual rebellion becomes a problem within the local church, we may find ourselves the object of church discipline, which is also designated to be corrective. I want you to notice that in Matthew 18, the church discipline passage says, if your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the point, right? Is for your brother to realize what is going on and to, to repent, to have a change of mind, metanoiao. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuse, refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But notice... Verse 15 sets the standard. The idea is to win your brother. Every one of these steps from individual to two or three to the entire church, every one of those steps is intended to be corrected, which, by the way, uh, the Corinthian church failed on, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul pointed out that the person that we don't, we don't know this person's name, so we just call him such a one. That's exactly right. Such a one, because that's what the language of the scripture is, such a one. This individual, we don't know his name, he was actually having an affair with his father's wife. Now, the language of that describes it as though it wasn't his actual mother. It was either his mother had died and his father remarried, but we don't know the answer to that. All we know is it wasn't his actual mother, but he's having an affair with it, and everybody in the church knows about it, and they're not doing anything about it. And he gives them a reprimand for doing that. And then they did something about it. We kind of can figure it out by 2 Corinthians because they did something about it. But then he comes back to the church and he's repentant. He realized what he did was wrong. And that was the goal of all of that anyway, right, was to get the individual to repent. And then after he repents and he comes back and he's ready to, to walk the walk and so on, they won't let him back in the church. And then they get a reprimand for that because then they were, they were thinking punitive, that's the problem. They were thinking of doing that they needed to do something to this individual punitive instead of in a disciplinary way. Discipline is intended to correct. So important to understand that, intended to correct. All right, we're going to stop right there. We'll look at our scripture of the week. We'll come back next time and we'll look at a call to prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We'll take a look at our scripture of the week now. Let's all read this together. It'll help us remember it. Psalm 97, verse 10. Psalm 97, verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. 
who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. All right. Now, this is in an Old Testament context. The psalmist is writing here. But one of the first things I want you to notice, and this is really what I wanted to key in on from this verse, is that this individual is both hating and loving at the same time. At least that's the instruction here, isn't it? That you're supposed to love the Lord and hate evil. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because in the worldly, and I'm putting air quotes around this, worldly wisdom, love and hate are antithetical. You cannot have love and hate at the same time. But the Bible teaches us over and over and over and over again that we can love and hate at the exact same time. They are not in opposition to one another. In fact, we are supposed to love the Lord and hate evil. We've heard, you've heard this before, I'm sure, the idea of uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, that's not 100% accurate, but it's pretty close, right? The idea that we are supposed to have agape love for anyone who's engaged in sin, and yet at the same time, we're supposed to hate the sinful activity, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're, ne- we're never supposed to make an excuse for sin. See, the world wants you to believe that if you truly love me, you have to accept everything about me as it is, which means you're supposed to be okay with everything I do. And I like to give the, the example, the per, but to me is a perfect example. My mom loves me, but I guarantee you she has not approved of everything I've done in my life, not in any manner. I mean, there's a lot of things I've done in my life that she does not approve of. We're supposed to be able to love people, including unbelievers, by the way, love people, but not approve of everything that they do. We can absolutely hate sinful activity, but at the same time, love the individual we can do that we can love uh we can love the 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 this beautiful planet that we've been put on uh, and the creation that god has made but hate satan's cosmos world system right we can hate this whole system that satan's got in place that is deluding all sorts of people we can hate that we should hate that Uh, but we can love this wonderful planet that we've been put on and all that so love and hate coexist that's the point I'm trying to make. Love and hate coexist. Yes. I agree 100%. Suzanne said it beautifully. The more you love the Lord, as we begin to know God more and more, and the more that we, more that we love him, the more we end up hating evil because it really stands out. It, you know, the, the light shines even brighter and the darkness is is more clear to us, right? So I, be, I believe that 100%, that the more you love the Lord, the more you actually hate evil. But my point being that in Scripture all over the place, we have instruction that love and hate exist at the same time. So don't think that, they're, they're in, that they can't. They do. They coexist. Now look what it says here. He preserves the souls of his godly ones. Huh? Well, you say, wait a minute. Uh, don't, don't believers, you know, sometimes they die, right? Well, yeah, we're talking about he preserves the souls of his godly ones. Read that right, right? He says he delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Does that always mean, does that always mean that you necessarily survive? Let me give you an example. A lot of times we have someone who's sick, someone who, who maybe we find out they have cancer or something of that nature, and we pray for them to be healed. Let me tell you one of the ways that people are healed. Physical death. <laughs> physical death. Because when they die physically, they're no longer suffering from that disease, are they? It's over. 
So you have to accept God's answer. We, in fact, we had a discussion about that. Remember, do you remember when we were at, in the Bible study uh, over at, the, at that house and that came up, the whole idea of somebody who's talked about being sick and they prayed to be healed? Do you remember this? So they prayed to be healed, and they, and they did. They actually had been healed from the disease, and that's great. But Sally actually brought up, but what if you hadn't been? That's all she said. Just a very simple thing. But what if you hadn't been healed from it? Would you still love God? Would you still have the same faith? You should. Because God's the one God's the one who can heal, but he's also sovereign, is he not? He can choose. And by the way, like I said, physical death itself is a, is a, is a way of being healed. You're no longer suffering under that disease. We need to recognize that being delivered from the hand of the wicked doesn't always mean that we have temporal prosperity, that we have temporal being delivered from the hand of the wicked means that God protects us. He preserves our souls and he protects us from the wicked ones out there. I guarantee, I promise you, if you... If you walk the way that you're supposed to walk and you have the armor on, you have the protection from God, right? You have, you've been provided with the protection. If you read through the armor passage, almost all of it until the very end is defensive in nature, isn't it? It's helmets, it's shields, it's breastplates, it's all the things that are going to protect us, right, from being harmed uh, by the adversary. And then you get to the very end and you have the offensive weapon. And what is the offensive weapon itself? The word of God. Amen. So we have an offensive weapon, but over and over again, it talks about the defensive things. And why is that so important? Because we are under attack, people. We talked about the spiritual warfare. We're under attack. You need to rely upon God to protect you and deliver your deliver you from the hand of the wicked and preserve your soul because he's the one that can do it. This world, everything about this world is trying to corrupt you, right? To corrupt you. And so as Romans chapter 12 teaches us, What's going to happen? You're either being transformed by the renewing of the mind or what? Conformed to this world. And there's no in-between, by the way. You know, a lot of people, they have this idea that they're going to, you know, maybe they're going along and then they'll just press the old cruise control, right? That's what I like to call it. You press the spiritual cruise control and you're just going to kind of cruise for a while. Well, guess what? The Bible never presents it that way. You're either going this way growing or you're going the other way. Right. You're going the other way. So you need to be on the path where you continue to grow in your faith and don't allow yourself to uh, drift off from the things that are there. So but the main thing, the main thing I really wanted to point out from this verse was the idea of love and hate coexisting, because this world lies to you about that. You know, by the way, what we've seen, I'll finish with this. What we've seen is that. And again, I go back to and I, as far as I'm concerned, it was the Supreme Court ruling regarding homosexual marriage is when everything changed back before that the way i saw it is all these fringe groups and that's what they are all these fringe groups were screaming out for acceptance right they wanted acceptance they wanted us to accept that there were lgbtqiaws 3 4 whatever all that i can't even keep up with it anymore right they wanted they wanted acceptance after the Supreme Court ruling and they became emboldened, and that's what I've seen is they became emboldened, they don't want acceptance anymore. They're trying to force you to agree with them or else you're wrong. That's what it's changed to. It used to be just accept us. We just want you to accept us. Now you are, you are evil and wrong in their eyes, right? In their eyes, you're evil and you're wrong if you don't agree with what they're saying. And so we've got... We've got, we've got the 3% that, 
dragging around the 97% is what's going on. The, the, the tail is wagging the dog is what's going on. And it's really, it's really uh, horrible. But, it, but that's the whole thing that because their idea is if you don't agree with them, then that means you, you are a hater, right? You are a hater. And uh, they don't understand the concept. And this is what I want you to understand. I, I want you all to be able to function in love. We should be able to love even those who oppose us. We were looking at that last hour. We should be able to love even those who oppose us. But at the same time, what Suzanne said, the more you know God, the more you're going to hate evil. So while you love them at the same time, you hate the evil that's being perpetrated in the world around us. That's what I'm going to close with. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to look at these passages in 1 Timothy that we've already studied verse by verse, but in our review we're, we're still learning even more as we go back and read these verses and we, we look at the principles, we learn even more because your word is so rich. It can just teach us over and over again. We can read the same passage a hundred times and yet glean even more from it every time we read it. I just love that about your word. So thank you for the things that we learned today. Help us to remember that we are to operate in the sphere of love. We are to have agape love in our hearts. Uh, At the same time, we are not to accommodate sin. We are never to make accommodations for sin. Our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son had to die on the cross for those sins. And, And if we try to accommodate sin, then in my mind anyway, we're thinking lightly of what he did on the cross. He suffered on that cross for those sins. It was horrible what he had to go through for all of those sins. So we should never make accommodation for sin. But at the same time, uh, Father, help us to not get to the place where we become hateful and bitter uh, toward those who are against us. Help us to continue to function in a way that's, that's built on and based upon agape love. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to finish with a final hymn. Praise him, praise him.